This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's primary elections are less than a month away, and we have introduced you to all the major party candidates for governor, except one, Democrat Jared Polis. And he's our guest today. If elected, he'd be the nation's first openly gay governor. Perhaps why he held a campaign event recently called Breaking Barriers. You know, as a basic value, uh, I and probably most of you here believe that diversity is a strength. And if you believe that diversity is a strength, then you want more of it, right? Um, And so that's at all levels, including appointments that I get to make as governor, whether it's on the judicial side or in executive office, at all levels of representation. It has so many benefits. I mean, it means that people growing up from all backgrounds have that role model. And so it's about making sure that everybody knows that there should not be any barriers that hold them back from everything that they have the ability to accomplish. Polis grew up in Boulder, where his parents built a greeting card empire, which he later brought online. Along the way, he met Pat Schroeder, who became the first woman to serve Colorado in Congress. Polis brought her to this campaign event, citing her as a pioneer and a family friend. Pat knows my parents. Some of you do. My parents raised us in that way as kids in the 80s. You know, we thought it was a very normal thing to go to marches and demonstrations on weekends, whether it was, you know, nuclear disarmament or civil rights. Um, We were always out there uh, doing that. And I knew I wanted to, to give back. Polis became an entrepreneur, starting companies, including the online florist ProFlowers. Then he turned to politics, serving six years on the State Board of Education. He was elected to Congress in 2008, representing a district that stretches from his hometown across a swath of northern Colorado. When the campaign event was over, Schroeder and Polis chatted in the parking lot, where Polis said he's ready to leave Washington. There's an urgency where on an issue like climate change, we can't afford to wait till there's a new president and a new Congress. We need governors and cities and counties to lead the way. On, on early childhood education, you're only young once. If you don't have preschool and kindergarten in place, that child doesn't get it. And it leads to another generation of the divide. So that's the urgency of acting now. And Jared Paulus is in our studio. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. What's the single biggest problem facing Colorado? How will you solve it? You know, the, the frustration that I hear from, from so many people, not just in the Denver metro area, frankly, across our state, is yes, uh, most people have a job, unemployment's low. But, but, you know, people say, look, I've gotten a 2%, a 3% raise a year, but my cost of living's gone up 10% or 15%, my rent or my mortgage, or my kids can't afford to go to college or buy a home. So it's this overall frustration that this economic growth just hasn't worked for everybody. And that's why we focus on how we can raise incomes really across the the whole continuum in Colorado and also make meaningful contributions on reducing costs with more affordable housing closer to where people work. Okay, it makes sense for a candidate to say, I'll raise your incomes, right? That's a nice promise to make to voters who are deciding whether to cast a ballot for you. How does a governor do that? Isn't that a company decision from a CEO? So a couple ideas. First of all, I support letting local communities set their own minimum wage above the state minimum wage uh, that you know allows communities to reflect the local labor market in higher cost of living areas like Denver or like the mountain communities or like Fort Collins or Boulder. In addition, uh, I talk a lot about employee ownership models, meaning 
uh, ESOPs, co-ops, stock options. Uh, the companies that I started, like Pro Flowers, every employee got stock options, whether they were answering phones, taking flower orders, or whether they were programmers. I kicked off my campaign at Save a Lot Grocery Store in Colorado Springs, and there's some in the Denver metro as well. It's a 100% employee-owned grocery store. So we want to remove barriers to implementing, implementing real, meaningful models of making sure that the people who work and create value actually share in that value. Are you saying that right now, if a company wanted to do that for its employees, that's not easy to do in Colorado? It's not that easy. I talked to an entrepreneur in Loveland the other day, uh, about 25-person uh, company, who wants to implement you know, an employee ownership model. But when they talk to the lawyers and accountants, they say it would cost hundred dollars to $200,000 to do that. That's like their whole profits for a year. So it's not realistic. So we want to remove those barriers and provide technical assistance to allow more. And my, my goal is for Colorado to be the leader in meaningful worker participation in profits and ownership. Back to the idea of the minimum wage, Colorado already has increased it. What would you say to business owners who are shaking in their boots at the idea that it might go up even further? Well, I think we have very different communities across our state, and it should absolutely be the right on a number of issues uh, for communities to reflect the local conditions of their labor market. And frankly, there are vast differences between the labor market in Denver and Trinidad or uh, Fort Collins or Sterling. So I should think it's perfectly areas, appropriate. Should rural areas lower their minimum wages? Well, no, there's got to be a floor, right? And we also have a national floor and we have a state floor that's part of our state constitution. I'm certainly not talking about tinkering with that. But I think many communities are very interested in saying, you know what? We want to go above and beyond the state floor and setting a minimum wage that works for local businesses and for workers because these are communities where often on minimum wage you can't even afford to live. And by the way, you know, that's not just Denver or Fort Collins or Boulder. It's many of the suburban communities. I mean, this is a very important and vibrant community discussion, and I don't think our local residents should be deprived of the opportunity to do more for workers. And they are thus deprived today? They are. They're prohibited under state law from from setting a higher minimum wage. I'd like to talk to you about another big issue in this campaign, uh, certainly for you, but for many of the other candidates on the Democratic side, and that is education. You would like free full-day preschool and full-day kindergarten in Colorado. How do you pay for it? I mean, first of all, how could we not pay for it? Uh, you know, it, it actually saves money over time. A number of studies have shown it reduces special education rates if kids get preschool and kindergarten. It uh, reduces the grade repetition rate. I'm the father of a six-year-old and a three-year-old. So we can afford preschool and kindergarten. Why should my kids start out at an advantage over families that can't. It's completely unfair. It perpetuates the social, economic, and racial divide. Uh, three ways to pay for it. First of all, of course, we want to find uh, room in the general fund to to pay for it. Second of all, public-private partnerships through social impact bonding. This is how Westminster Adams 50 School District has gotten to universal kindergarten for every kid for free, and they have half their kids in full-day preschool. And third, if there's any left to fund, we're willing to roll up our sleeves and go to the ballot to do it. And I think if we show we've done the most with what we have, uh, voters will be willing to make that basic guarantee to all parents that, yes, your kids can go to preschool and kindergarten. One more thing, a lot of, unless you have a kid who is young, you might not realize all you get in this state now is half a day kindergarten. That's it. Parents have to pay for full day unless you're very low income. Uh, and parents have to pay for preschool. Again, absent a few slots for very low income families. So, so middle class gets uh, the short end of the stick. You might go to the ballot, but you hope that there's money in the general fund for this. So often the two priorities that are pitted against each other in the general fund transportation and education. So why don't we talk about transportation? It's always part of the conversation when you talk about uh, the the money that the state has. Uh, what is your plan to ease the congestion that is driving a lot of people, certainly on the front range, crazy? 
and that uh, is leading to roads that are not of, of high quality, according to those in rural areas. You know what? When people are stuck in traffic, whether it's during their commute or during their leisure time, uh, it doesn't matter whether they're Republican or independent or Democrat. They are frustrated. They want a governor that's going to do something about it. We have a bold transportation plan at polisforcolorado.com. I encourage you to check it out. And one of the highlights include Front Range Rail, Pueblo to Fort Collins, which uh, can compete uh, on, on being time effective and cost effective for people to get to work and commute from the suburban communities. And we've got to get provide more alternatives through freedom of transportation to, you know, more than just a single occupancy vehicle. You know, it's not that lane widening doesn't have a role, but you will never widen your way out of this traffic and growth dilemma that we are in. You've got to look at rail. You've got to look at bike commuting. You've got to look at transit plan communities. And yes, you've got to look at affordable housing so people can live closer to where they work rather than forcing taxpayers to pay for it on the back end through roads to the only places where people can afford to live. Likely headed for the ballot this year is a potential sales tax increase that the business business community is trying to get support for. And uh, you've said that if that doesn't pass, you would lead an effort to go to the ballot and ask people for more money for for roads, et cetera. I think that's a critical role of the next governor. Again, there's a compromise with with this current governor and the current legislature, and we'll see what happens in November. But if it remains to be done, it, uh, I think the people of the state absolutely want a governor that will step up and lead on addressing the uh, the growth and the traffic and the congestion that we all experience. And uh, we have an exciting plan to do it. Okay. I'm not getting at the adding machine, at least literally. But if we look at the cost, for instance, of full-day preschool, full-day kindergarten, potentially the cost of a sales tax increase to pay for transportation. Uh, You add that all up, and I I wonder what you would tell a fiscally conservative voter who might be taking part in the Democratic primary in less than a month, who thinks, well, this is the definition of a tax-and-spend bolder liberal here. The the, the price tag is adding I certainly hope that fiscally conservative uh, voters participate in our Democratic Party. We are the party of fiscal responsibility. I think we've demonstrated that. Uh, at the national level, I've always sponsored a balanced budget amendment. Uh, but in addition, this ridiculous uh, Republican tax giveaway, coupled with record increases in spending in defense, uh, have are creating trillion-dollar deficits at the national level. But speaking to uh, you, and I bring that sa- yeah, I bring that same fiscal responsibility to the state level. And I think if you're ever going to go to taxpayers uh, for more money, the challenge that you have to show is that you're doing the most you can with what you have. And you also have to make sure that if you're asking for more money around something like education, that it's not going to some slush fund carved up by Denver politicians, that people and voters know exactly where it's going to go and that it will reach the classroom, meaning smaller class size, meaning better teacher pay. It won't be eaten up by administrators or districts or carved up in Denver. So you really have to show people that they're going to get value for anything else that they're going to pay. It's the same with roads. You have to show, hey, what does this mean in your community? Uh, What does this mean for your quality of life? Because again, when you're stuck in traffic, it doesn't matter what your party is. You want to do something about it. But on one hand, you're talking about people's ability to scrape by, especially when housing is so expensive. And you're saying, uh, you know, I, I may want to raise your taxes if I'm elected governor. How do you balance those? Well, we want to have a vibrant economy. It's certainly part of the legacy of John Hickenlooper that we want to continue as a growing economy. But the challenge is our economy, the economic growth just hasn't worked for everybody. For a lot of Coloradans, they're not better off than they were before the Great Recession. In fact, they're struggling to keep up with bills, whether it's college loans, whether it's rent or mortgage, or whether it's car payments. So uh, what we need to do is, of course, continue 
our economic growth, but do a better job making making sure it works for everyone geographically and regionally. I mean, the cost of being stuck in traffic for your average Coloradan is $600 a year. So that's a tax you're already paying in lost productivity. And I think that we can save Coloradans money uh, by saving them time. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And our conversations with the gubernatorial candidates wrap up with Jared Polis, the Democrat vying for the Democratic nomination to energy now. Currently, state law requires that drill rigs for oil and gas be a minimum of 500 feet from homes, 1,000 feet from public buildings like schools, hospitals. A lot of local governments say those limits are insufficient. They're fighting for the right to make their own rules. Should they have that power to create stricter setbacks, that is to put drilling farther away? So one of the reasons I'm I'm running for governor is we have to act on climate, on clean air, in the absence of national leadership. And we have a plan to get our state to 100% renewable energy by 2040 or sooner. Now, I know we're not there now. And so absolutely, we need to make sure that neighborhoods and communities have a say in what happens in their own backyard. They do have a say already. Do you want them to have more of a say? I do look forward to formalizing the say that local communities have. Part of the problem now, Ryan, is communities get sued over exercising that say. So it's not exactly a say. There's lawsuits flying around over exactly what they can and can't do. For smaller communities, uh, they often get bullied and can't afford the cost of seeing something through litigation, even if it's a right they have. Should they be able to set stricter setbacks specifically? Yeah, absolutely. I've always supported the rights of local communities to be able to have a say in citing oil and gas activities in and around their communities. Absolutely. Does that lead to um, a difficult patchwork for the for the industry? No, it's the same thing we do with cannabis. It's the same thing I propose doing with minimum wage. Uh, you know, we need to empower problem solvers closest to the ground, closest to our local communities. Um, the city council people are the people that you know are responsive to you. These decisions, decisions shouldn't all be made by Denver politicians. They should be made in your community to reflect your neighborhood values and your community values uh, around siting and zoning. Let's talk about the 100% renewable energy goal by 2040. You cite climate change as a major threat and a motivator in that goal. Here's what one of your Democratic primary opponents, this is the current Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn, here's what she said at a candidate forum about your goal a few months ago. If I'm your governor, I'm your governor between 2019 and 2027, and I'm going to work really hard on long-range plans that are in place and that we can achieve during my term. I don't think it's responsible to talk about so far in the future that we can't really even understand where we're going to go. So my promise to you with respect to any transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy is it's going to be realistic. When you hear a candidate say, I'm promising something for 2040 when I'm not in office, is, is that a promise that you just can't keep? Uh, not only is it responsible, it's imperative to talk about the big, bold goal of getting to 100% renewable energy. When John F. Kennedy talked about going to the moon within a decade, he said that in 1961. He didn't live uh, nor serve to see that out, but you know what? America did it. And we in Colorado need to reach 100% renewable energy by 2040 or sooner for our air, for our climate, and also to create good green jobs. So I think people are excited about this bold goal. That's why Sierra Club has endorsed me. Uh, that's why I have support, strong support from uh, those who care about the health of our kids and clean air. 
and we're going to get it done right here in Colorado. And if you, you know, it starts, it starts uh, somewhere and we're going to, we're going to start the process in place to make that conversion complete by 2040 or sooner. Obstacles that people point to are cost. Also, the idea that there is just not the battery technology that exists today to store that energy for when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. How do you make a promise like that without the technology perhaps in place to make that a reality? Well, again, it's a lot uh, easier to foresee the route to that um, than it might have been to foresee the route to putting a person on the moon in 1961. Uh, We're there today. The cost of new wind generation is already 15% less than the new coal. Uh, We have a comprehensive plan to get to 100% renewable energy on my website at polisforcolorado.com. It includes uh, raising the cap on uh, community-scale solar, uh, lowering the financing costs for home solar, uh, working through the Public Utilities Commission with our investor-owned utilities, and working alongside our co-ops and our municipal utilities to help them reach that goal. What do you say to someone who works in oil and gas right now? Well, you know, again, I think that's a cyclical economy. People know that. There's good times and there's bad times. What I'm excited about is in Mesa County today, Grand Junction area, traditionally an oil and gas county, there's actually more jobs today in the outdoor tourism and recreation industry. Um, I'm proud to be supported by the pipe fitters and many of the men and women that uh, that work uh, in, in oil and gas and other areas. And you know what? We want to make sure they're first in line for good, green, renewable energy jobs. There's going to be as many, if not more, jobs in energy in 10 years and in 20 years, and there are today. And we want to make sure that people that work in fossil fuels are able to have that transition to have good paying jobs in renewable energy. To health care, you've endorsed a plan called Medicare for All. You've sponsored that legislation in Congress. It's gone nowhere. How do you make it happen as governor? It's time for the states to lead. Again, that's uh, why I'm running for governor. Uh, it's not going to happen nationally uh, until I think a number of states have stepped up. Every other industrialized nation has some form of universal health care. Of course we can get it done. When people say we can't, I say, how can you say we can't when everybody else does it? Americans are getting ripped off and we're paying too much for prescription drugs uh, and for health care coverage. One large risk pool, negotiating for prescription drug rates, uh, taking that burden off of small businesses for providing health care. This will be a boom to our economy, as well as finally recognizing that health care is a human right. And we have the policies to get that done in Colorado. But doesn't health care also benefit, benefit from economies of scale? In other words, does it makes sense for a state to lead on something like that? So our top priority would be to do it through a multi-state consortium. And I think that's possible, indeed even likely, that a number of states will feel this frustration with Washington, that it won't be Colorado alone. It might be Colorado, Washington, Oregon, who knows what other states might join. You're absolutely right. The larger the risk pool, the greater leverage you have in negotiating better prescription drug rates. Can Colorado do it alone? Yes. Is it better to do it together with several states? It is. And the savings will be even more profound for you in paying for your health care. In 2013, there was a proposal in Congress to ban a variety of military-style weapons. At the time, the Denver Post said you opposed the measure. The Post quoted you as saying, I believe it would make it harder for Colorado families to defend themselves and also interfere with the recreational use of guns by law-abiding Coloradans. Earlier this year, you sponsored a bill in Congress to ban assault-style weapons. Just briefly, what changed? So I've always taken on the NRA from my first days in office, and I supported universal background checks, uh, co-authored a bipartisan bill to ban bump stocks. Uh, You know, we haven't even gotten that done at the national level, which is why, again, I'm running for governor. We need to move forward on gun safety right here in Colorado. I think we've all seen 
uh, the, 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 just the terrible tragedies. And no, no parent should have to get that call from their school. And as the father of a six-year-old and a three-year-old, I get that. Uh, and it's not like the, uh, you know, the military-grade weapons are part of that. And we have a plan to help get them off of our streets. But it's also got to be a broader discussion around the red flag laws proposed in the legislature, around holds on people with uh, temporary restraining orders for domestic abuse, school safety and mental health counseling. So did you, absolutely, did you have a change guns. of heart? Uh, well, I think like a lot of folks, um, I think that we need to fight this on all fronts. Um, you know, I, I stood up to the NRA for my very first days in Congress. They've raided me an F and, uh, you know, we were focused on things that haven't even been done yet. But yes, specifically reinstating the ban on the sale of assault weapons that we already had in this country from 1994 to 2004 uh, would absolutely help save lives in our country. And I'm proud to support it. And was was there a change there? Was it perhaps the school shootings well, I think what we saw is that, um, you know, that when there's a difference between what type of gun you're using and when people are using these semi-automatic weapons with very high rates of fire, they can cause a lot more damage. So again, it's not the only issue uh, with regard to gun safety. Uh, it might not even be the biggest issue with regard to gun safety, but I do think it's important to make that statement that we should reimpose that ban, of course, at the federal level. And of course, in running for governor, uh, we would look at those policies at the state level. At the state level. So let's talk about the AR-15 specifically. This is an answer that I've had trouble getting out of your Democratic opponents in this race. What would you do with people who have an AR-15 right now? Well, again, what what I support is reimposing the the ban on the sale of weapons that meet a certain firing rate categorization, uh, or that have uh, magazines that meet a certain you know that are that are banned now in Colorado. So, would it be retroactive to those who have those now? Well, the the ban that was in place federally was going forward. I'm not exactly sure how someone would implement something that was that was retroactive. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think the goal is to get weapons of war off the streets. But you know, your focus on this one gun issue uh, should not be to the detriment of so many other gun safety issues that actually can save even more lives. And when we look at the nexus between domestic violence and gun abuse, we need to find a way where somebody's under a temporary restraining order in a domestic case to temporarily lose access to their weapons. The red flag law around mental health and a mental health hold on access to guns. You'd I mean, pursue these that are, as governor. Absolutely. And, and these will save even more lives. So again, these are all important parts of the discussion around gun safety. Uh, and what you'll find in me as governor is a governor who's willing to have all of those discussions in a fact-based way to try to save lives so that no parent has to get the unthinkable call. Before we go, I want to talk just briefly about the campaign and specifically campaign finance. Uh, You have $8 million in contributions and 7.8 of that is your own money. Uh, Why, for all intents and purposes, bankroll your own campaign? Well, you know, I... When I got into this, I said, you know what, um, I'm not going to run it to be the candidate of the special interests or outside backers. I want to be only beholden to the people of Colorado. And our campaign finance system is broken. I've long supported public financing of campaigns, matching funds for small donations, banning PACs, transparency on the dark money. And I'll work to get that done as governor. Are you but where we are you- today... Uh, we need to make sure that we can show that we're able to compete and have the resources to compete with the outside dark money and that I'll uh, work for no one but the people who put me there. Are you saying that you'd like a world someday where you wouldn't have to or wouldn't even be able to 
bankroll. Well, to that, to yeah, that exactly. It's kind of okay. a horrible choice that candidates have today. And I would much rather, I've had over 200 grassroots meet and greets across the state. Uh, if you'd like to host one, you can sign up at polisforcolorado.com. I've, you've heard and that I, website a few times. I, you know, but, 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 you know, that to me is a more important way to campaign than having dinner with 10 millionaires in a Denver steakhouse every night. And I think that's what some of the other candidates have been forced to do. Uh, and I'm excited to be out there having these community discussions. Thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Jared Polis, congressman from Boulder and running for governor in the Democratic primary. This is the last of our interviews with the major party candidates before the primaries. You can hear the conversations we've already aired, read transcripts at CPR.org. And next week, we launch a podcast of all these gubernatorial interviews. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. With 50 patents for medical devices, it's fair to call Dr. Dick Fulton of Grand Junction a prolific inventor, and he's working on his 51st. If you've ever had a blood clot pulled from an artery, tissue taken for a breast biopsy, or an injection for deadening pain, it's possible Dr. Fulton had an invisible hand in your treatment. He's a retired radiologist, and he's in our studio in Grand Junction. Doctor, welcome to the program. Good morning. It's a it's a certainly a uh, pleasure to be here this morning with you, Ryan. I understand your inventions are driven by four words: what if and why not. Uh, are you constantly looking at things around you and dreaming up better ways to make them or do them? Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, uh, it's it's a uh, it's uh, so stimulating in in a life. Uh, it uh, it it takes a a positive attitude to kind of think of well, what if this could be done better, or what if this could be done differently, and it could save people's uh, lives. In the case of some of my my uh, medical inventions, but it could help people in their ordinary uh, quote healthy unquote lives. Uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, today, actually, uh, in in some other realms, and uh, so uh, when I uh, see a need, I kind of I kind of put it in uh, to the uh, the what if uh, category and kind of kind of chew on it a, a bit, and then uh, if if there's a potential solution, I say why not, and I, I try to, to develop a plan to. To uh, get it from from idea to fruition, you did this for thirty years while at St. Mary's Hospital in Grand Junction, and the medical devices you've invented are things like the Sauna Glow, the Mammo Mark, and the Megavac mechanical thrombectomy system. So these may not be recognized by the general public, but but the inventions have benefited countless patients. Uh, how much were they driven by problems you ran into as a physician? I can answer that very uh, uh, simply. All of them were driven by problems that I ran into as as a physician. Uh, as, as far as the uh, the Sonoglow, it was hard to see an ultrasound needle when I was doing an ultrasound guided biopsy uh, uh, somewhere deep in the human body huh. uh, because the 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 sound waves would get reflected uh, off to the side and not back to the transducer, if you will. And to make it simple, I, I took a standard needle down to a local jeweler, had him cut some notches in it and tested it, and it it worked. I, I got a patent on it, and uh, it's, 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 it's still being used today. Indeed, a jeweler helped you with this, and I understand a turkey breast. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's 
right. Okay. We, we did the test with the turkey breast. What about the Megavac? How does it help treat blood clots? Well, uh, so, so blood clots are a huge problem, whether they cause heart attacks or whether they cause uh, uh, problems in uh, the legs with uh, the peripheral circulation. And, uh, and removing them uh, frequently is, is necessary, and removing them without surgery is necessary. Well, it's hard to get a blood clot through a little tiny straw that you insert into uh, the person's uh, artery or their vein. And so I came up with a way to enlarge the end on the straw t- into a funnel shape and to uh, have a, a, a distal basket or a, a basket on the other side of the clot to pull the clot into the large mouth funnel of the catheter and then out of the catheter and then out of the human body. And so that's essentially how it works. And it's it's seen success. Uh, it's been launched in the peripheral vascular tour, and we're uh, going to launch it in, in the coronary artery where it will make a significant difference in July. So that's exciting. You got to see that in action for the first time, I think, when it was used on a patient. Is, is that a nerve-wracking step? I mean, you, you've tinkered away, you've uh, experimented, and then comes that moment of truth. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure that the term nerve-wracking would be it, but I was excited. I, I uh, 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 was actually nervous, uh, so, per, uh, so perhaps it was nerve-wracking. But uh, so they rolled this lady in, into the room. This is the first time it had been used in humans. It had been used in animals and, and, and a lab testing over and over and over, and we knew it was going to work. But we didn't, you know, we hadn't used it in a human yet. And so, so they rolled this lady into the room. She had a heart attack. And they were giving her CPR as they rolled her into the room. Uh, and I said, uh-oh, I would like a more stable patient to be my first patient. I hope this guy doesn't use this uh, this catheter. I'm going to talk about the cardiologist uh, on, on this lady here because, you know, the outcomes might not be good. But but he, he called for it and used it, and it saved her life. Her, her uh, EKG returned to... to to a near normal, and and all of the other parameters returned to to, to what they should be, and uh, that was uh, extremely rewarding. Uh, it um, and it was emotional. Uh, it, you're, you're right. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Dr. Dick Fulton of Grand Junction. We learned about him recently. He is a retired radiologist and prolific and continuing inventor with. 50 patents for medical devices. He's now moving into the realm of lifestyle aids with a small plastic device called the reliever to reduce jaw pain. I understand also that uh, you came up with a face rejuvenating mask and wrap based on uh, the oxygen you use at night for sleep apnea. And I, I wonder, do you have a, a lair, a lab where you do all of this? Well, I have a, a workshop where I do some some research, mainly on the Internet. I uh, tinker a tiny bit, but it's mainly thinking and, and putting uh, the dots together so that they match and, and they come up with a, a product. Uh, the first thing I do, I, I, uh, there's a program that I, I call WHOOP, W-O-O-P. And if you'll just let me go through this for a second, the, f- the first one, the W, is the wish or the vision, the idea of what I see and what I want it to be and what it can be. 
the and then I go to the O, which is the opportunity or the outcome that I want or the the vision I see. I see that there's a lot of people that may be able to be helped by this and. What size is that market, and how easy is that market and to quickly, get into? What are the O and P? The the last O and P. The O and P, the o, the second O is the obstacles that you always have that are always there, and you have to address. And they can be from uh, patenting, patenting, patenting it to prototyping it to funding to whatever. And the P is the plan. Is the and, plan uh, the plan? The plan can be very loose initially, but it, it it certainly needs some substance going forward. And and I've just gotten gotten into the. Uh, the, uh, the process of, of a following that along, and it, it seems to work. Well, we have I, I, whooped it up with Dr. Dick Fulton. He's a retired <laughs> radiologist and inventor of medical devices. Joining us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. A new wildlife refuge close to Denver is set to open this summer. It has 5,000 acres of prairie grasslands. It's home to 600 different species and offers breathtaking views. It also was once home to the Rocky Flats Nuclear Trigger Manufacturing Plant. That history has prompted serious pushback from surrounding communities who say the site isn't safe. Meanwhile, former Rocky Flats workers still struggle with health problems caused by exposure to plutonium, uranium, and chemicals on the job decades ago. CPR's Alexandra McMahon has the story. How long did you work out there? Right till the very end. This is Denny Simon, and he's getting a free blood pressure reading at a resource fair for nuclear weapons workers. He was one of more than 100 workers to show up in Arvada last month. The fair was organized by the Colorado-based group Cold War Patriots. Their mission is to connect uranium and plutonium workers to benefits offered by the government for their lingering health problems. If it wasn't for the things that we did, who knows what the war would be. That's 69-year-old Ray Melito. He currently works for Cold War Patriots, but for 31 years he was an employee at Rocky Flats, first as a janitor, but eventually as a lab technician. I would um, have to go up in the rafters And the only thing that I had on was a little painter's mask. When I got back off, that mask was completely black. And a lot of it was carbon, but a lot of it was also beryllium. Melito has lost some of his hearing from working around the chemicals at Rocky Flats. But he says he's one of the lucky ones because he hasn't come down with something worse, like chronic beryllium disease, which causes scarring of the lung tissue. Basically, what we did is took whatever precautions they wanted, and we still got sick. That's 70-year-old Larry Snodgrass, who worked at Rocky Flats for 27 years, and he has come down with chronic beryllium disease. Snodgrass worked as an inspector of beryllium shells. The beryllium is like a dust, and you cannot see it. In other words, you know, you could be in this room, and it could be all through here, and so forth. Matter of fact, we found out later on that it actually had moved into the ventilation system, and some of the office workers got contaminated, too. Chronic beryllium disease makes it hard to breathe. When it gets in the lungs, it blocks off airways. Snodgrass says over the years, CBD has claimed the lives of some of his former co-workers. He uses an oxygen tank at night and has to get checkups every six months to see how much lung capacity he's lost. Once your lungs start malfunctioning, there's all kinds of problems. Rocky Flats was shut down in the 80s when the FBI suspected it was breaking numerous environmental laws. After years of work and $7 billion in costs, The Environmental Protection Agency said Rocky Flats was all cleaned up. 
State studies also concluded that there were no higher rates of cancer in people living near the site, and that paved the way for a wildlife refuge. This summer, after almost 30 years, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service plans to finally open Rocky Flats to the public, minus the part where the plant operated. Cindy Souders is a supervisory ranger at the refuge. She says it's important to give the public access to Rocky Flats because it has a unique ecosystem. There's areas of Zarek Tallgrass Prairie, which is one of the most unique ecosystems of this type in North America. There's over 600 species of plants at this refuge. The opening has been hotly debated for years, with many residents concerned that the soil is contaminated. But Souter says the service is confident that the area is safe. Our assurance is that cleanup has been completed. And so, uh, you know, I am going to believe in science. But some are convinced that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is, quote, engaging in a fiction. That's the claim made by several environmental groups who have filed a lawsuit. The group's attorney, Randall Weiner, says the cleanup at Rocky Flats was not thorough. We'll be seeking uh, an injunction from the federal district court and asking the judge to slow, in fact stop, the opening of the Rocky Flats refuge to the public this summer until the court takes a look at these issues. Despite scientists giving Rocky Flats the all-clear, its history still elicits strong emotional responses from the community. Last month, the school board for Denver Public Schools signed a resolution forbidding field trips to the refuge, claiming the risk of health effects from radiation was too great. Former Rocky Flats worker Ray Melito has similar concerns. I have a 13-year-old grandson. I wouldn't take him there. It's unclear if anyone will visit anytime soon since the lawsuit that claims it isn't safe is just getting underway. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. In recent years, local officials across Colorado have found themselves in the crosshairs of the sovereign citizens movement. It's a constitutional conspiracy theory that has led to harassment, even violence. CPR's Allison Sherry reports that now some of the movement's leaders face significant prison time. Former Boulder District Attorney Stan Garnett was used to getting weird letters from people. As a public official, particularly a prosecutor, he had his fair share of hate mail and even threats. But in 2015, what he started getting was worrisome. Documents from something called the People's Grand Jury, claiming he owed them more than a billion dollars. Some of the documents claimed to be warrants for my arrest. Some of the documents claimed to be essentially garnishments that would take property from my bank accounts, that kind of thing. The Colorado Attorney General's Office and the FBI call this paper terrorism. It's a favorite technique of the sovereign citizen movement. These are conspiracy theorists who believe the government has been hijacked. They argue they aren't subject to local and state laws because those laws aren't in the U.S. Constitution. Their theory was the district attorney is an illegal office. My uh, collecting a salary was theft from the people. And that, in fact, the entire law enforcement and government scheme in Boulder County was unconstitutional and unlawful. Garnett and others were targeted because they cracked down on people the sovereigns deemed sympathetic. In Garnett's case, he prosecuted a woman for violating a protection order. Ryan Lentz has tracked this movement for the Southern Poverty Law Center. He said the sovereigns nationally have caused problems way beyond paper terrorism including killing more than a dozen police officers over the past several years. It's turned into a considerable problem. Sovereign citizens often feel they operate outside of the law or above the law, and they find that, and they often get very angry and indignant and principled uh, when 
when a law enforcement officer might challenge them uh, on their fictitious standing. In the San Luis Valley, Administrator Ben Dune is accustomed to people wanting to live free of much government interference. But he says when front-range sovereign citizens started showing up in the valley a few years ago, something was different. These folks actually organized. Dune was targeted by the group after Costilla County started enforcing rules they had around homes having proper septic systems. Dune says at first, local people were excited about the energy from the outsiders. But eventually, even the locals started turning on them. And they definitely viewed these folks as a threat. And then the sovereign citizens, you know, viewed the locals as the threat as well. So it things re- would really get heated out on the streets. One of the ringleaders of this revolt in Costilla County was Bruce Doucette, a former Littleton shop owner who was among the most prominent members of the sovereign movement nationally. My job, what I want to try to do with you guys, is get this whole county back to Constitution. That audio from YouTube is a little crackly, but what Doucette was saying was that he wants to live purely by the Constitution. Not long after his activities in Costilla County, Doucette and eight of his cohorts were indicted on dozens of felony charges, including racketeering, extortion, and trying to influence a public servant. The case, investigated by the FBI and prosecuted by the state attorney general's office, was among the biggest crackdowns in the country in decades. Robert Shapiro is prosecuting the state's case. The true believers, the true ideologues like Mr. Doucette, I can't get into their mind as to whether they thought we would ever hold them accountable. This week, Doucette was sentenced to 38 years in state prison. He's one of the last to be sentenced in this group and he got the most significant sentence. Others have taken plea deals, and two others were also sentenced to more than 20 years. In his trial, Doucette represented himself, and he was alone on the stand when the judge read him his sentence. A religious man, Doucette told the judge that he was simply trying to clean up a corrupt government. Everything that I did was done in honor and integrity to lawfully and peaceably remove the corruption from this government. Prosecutor Shapiro, who has worked on this case for several years, says the uptick in incidents has leveled off since the prosecutions. But the sovereign ideology is still strong in Colorado. We expect in due course that the next generation of leaders will, will rise up and try to become the next Bruce Doucette. Until then, public officials may not need to worry quite so much about what's in their mailbox. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. You know the expression, running around like a chicken with its head cut off? Well, our next guest is about to give that new meaning. First, you need to know that the 20th annual Mike the Headless Chicken Festival begins Friday in Fruta on the Western Slope. Self-described weird historian Mark Hartzman is on the line to tell us about the event's origins and a note that the conversation will include some graphic descriptions. Mark, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Ryan. Surprisingly, you've written about other headless chickens, but tell us about what I think is the most famous one, Mike. Uh, How did Mike get his his headless start? (laughs) Mike is definitely the most famous of the headless chickens. He lost his head in 1945, and it happened uh, in Fruta, of course. It was a farmer named Lloyd Olson, and his wife had asked to have chicken for dinner that night. So he went outside into the yard, and he grabbed who would become Mike, um, with the intent of making him their dinner. And he swung his axe, um, but the blade had just missed the jugular vein, and it left the brainstem in place. Um, So fortunately, 
a blood clot helped prevent him from bleeding to death, but the head was gone, but the chicken was still functioning. It was still pecking around for food and strutting around. And Olson was just standing there, you know, clearly in amazement that he just chopped off the chicken's head and it was still alive. So rather than take another swing and try to complete his mission for dinner, he felt some sympathy for this chicken and also some, again, you know, amazement that this thing had this will to live. So he decided to embrace it and he was able to keep it alive by feeding it liquids and grains through an eyedropper. Huh. How how long did the chicken live? Well, the chicken lived for 18 months. Um, and so it became a bit of a, a national phenomena. So, of course, you know, locally, everyone was amazed by this. But uh, Olson realized that, that other people would like to see this kind of a chicken as well. So he ended up hiring a manager and they went on tour and they basically put on a sideshow with Mike, the headless chicken. Uh, he was known as the headless wonder chicken. So this went on from everywhere from New York to Los Angeles, where people could line up, they could pay a quarter, and they could see this headless chicken strutting around, <laughs> becking for food. Um, again, it's something that you know no one had really seen before. So it was quite a phenomenon, and, and they made quite a good amount of money. I can imagine that some think the kinder thing to have done would have been to put the chicken out of its misery. I, I, I can't say that the chicken was miserable, I suppose, but uh, that's speculation on my part. How, how did he, <laughs> How did Mike finally meet his demise? Well, they were on, on this tour, and they were at a motel one night, and the chicken he started to just choke. And Olson couldn't find the eyedropper that he would have used to, I guess, help clear the esophagus. And uh, sadly, he choked to death. And that was the end of Mike. It, was, it seemed like a bit of a, a freak thing, uh, no pun intended there. But uh, I think he would have lived perfectly healthy for much longer had he not just happened to choke at that moment and not had, and Olson had not had uh, his tools to, to help him survive. So this is well documented. Have you seen like photos? Oh, there's a lot of photos. Yeah. If you, if you just Google Mike the Headless Chicken, we'll have some there's of a lot of great website. photos. Yeah. He was, I mean, he was so popular that he was even in Time and, and Life magazine. Um, with lots of photos of him. And you can see, I mean, you see uh, Olsen holding the head and then the chicken right next to him. It's it's a pretty phenomenal image. And as we intimated in our introduction, not the only chicken to have survived this way. That's right. It's It would seem that it would be, but uh, history shows it's happened a few other times. Uh, the earliest case is that I was able to find was from 1883, and in this case, it was actually done on purpose. There was a doctor who was trying to create a headless rooster. And he was talking to a reporter, and he told the reporter that he was going to show that both politicians and roosters without heads can live in this free country. <laughs> so he was on this mission to just make a, make a point, I suppose. Um, but he, he used his instruments, and he very delicately and carefully took off the chicken's head, um, keeping the brainstem intact, and it worked. The chicken was continuing to walk around afterward without, uh, you know, without sight or thoughts or feeling, as he described. Um, so, so he was able to actually perform that uh, on purpose. Well, back to Mike, obviously, has been embraced by Fruta. If I recall from my last trip there, there's a huge Mike the Headless Chicken statue. And uh, this upcoming festival where they play bingo with a twist. That's right. They'll be playing chicken poop bingo. So it's put on by the local poultry club, and they use it as a fundraiser. And uh, anyone who wants to play can put down a quarter, um, and they get a square on the bingo board. And then wherever the chicken poops, uh, if that's your square, then you win. You win a small prize, like a, my, 
win a mic bandana or something else small. Um, but then what they'll do is they'll clean off the board, um, clean off all the poop, throw that away, and then they can have another round and continue the chicken poop bingo games. Well, thank you for sharing this weird history with us. It certainly lives up to its name, Mark. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about uh, the weirder side of life. Weird historian Mark Hartzman is the author of American Sideshow, an encyclopedia of history's most wondrous and curiously strange performers. The 20th annual Mike the Headless Chicken Festival in Fruta starts on Friday. Before we go, a correction to a story last week about panning for gold. Our guest referred to the joy of seeing a flash in the pan, that is, seeing a gold flake appear. And I wondered aloud if that's where the expression flash in the pan came from. Of course, it means a short-lived success. And our guest surmised that that was the origin. Well, several listeners, including Charles Crawford of Denver, pointed out that is not the case. And they are backed up by good old Merriam-Webster. Flash in the pan refers to the misfire of a flintlock firearm. Muskets had a pan that held gunpowder, and when it flared up, no bullet was fired. You had a flash in the pan. So grateful to our listeners. We share your feedback regularly and loud and clear, so keep it coming. You can find all the ways to connect with us at cpr.org slash connect. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. And special thanks to Michelle P. Fulcher, who has led our coverage of the gubernatorial candidates. This is CPR News.